I was looking through, some of you were part of Point Academy on Sunday night. We were looking at how we interpret narrative text. And in preparation for that, I was looking at First and Second Samuel, which is a, a beautiful narrative text. And was reminded of a couple of things from that book. That the cardinal sin in First and Second Samuel is passivity. It's, it's standing by not doing anything. Eli, the high priest, doesn't do anything about his son's profaning worship. And he dies as a consequence of judgment of God against him for doing nothing. And then later, Saul, as king, is judged by God essentially for doing nothing. And even in David's life, if you'll remember, that episode with Bathsheba was begun by the fact that David was not where he should have been when he should have been there in the spring of the year when kings go out to war. David was in Jerusalem enjoying comfort and ease. The cardinal sin there is the sin of doing nothing. I used to say in my construction days to the guys that worked for me or with me, do something even if it's wrong. Now, don't do what's wrong. But there is value in doing something. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is nothing at all. And we need to be on guard against that kind of thing. I, we don't want to be Sunday morning, Wednesday night followers of Jesus. But people who are smitten with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard in him. So we're going to turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament. And that will be the focus of our study time together tonight. Malachi is probably best known as the book that speaks to tithing. Malachi does speak forcefully to the concept of tithing, to our willingness to give and God's willingness to give in response to our generosity. The kingdom way, the kingdom economy is built around open-handedness. There's something about giving it away that inclines the heart of God toward granting us all the more. To whom much is given, much is required. God loves an open-handed giver, and certainly those concepts are here in the book of Malachi. In my home church, a much more traditional, small, rural church, we used to sing the song, Trust Me, Try Me, Prove Me. Y'all remember that old hymn? It was a call to give and to give generously and a celebration of God's faithfulness to give in response trust me try me, improve me see if i won't throw open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that you've no room to store it it's a beautiful hymn that sings the teaching of god's word but there's much more to the book of malachi than just the concept of of giving in fact giving is a subset of the broader topic of worship in the book of malachi if there is a single focus in the book of malachi it is that we are to worship as the Bible prescribes, we are to worship in a way that's reflective of who we truly are in our heart of hearts. In fact, the main idea of the book itself is that our worship is discounted when it fails to conform to biblical regulations and or is not reflective of who we are in life. There is no faking it until you make it when it comes to the worship of our Lord. Now, there's a couple of ways that we could approach the book of Malachi, but I think maybe for us and our purposes on Wednesday night in our study, the best approach to Malachi is to look at this series of questions that are asked and then ultimately answered in the book of Malachi along the way. Virtually all of the book is held together by the asking and answering of questions, and you'll see very quickly what I mean. There's a series of eight of these 
in Malachi chapters 1 through 4. Look to verse number 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to desert jackals. Though Edom says, we've been devastated, but we'll rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They'll be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, this is one of those passages that people read and they immediately run to their systematic theology and they run there so quickly and they find such objections with what is clearly stated here that they fail to relish what is clearly stated in the text. Namely, that God has looked upon Israel with remarkable favor. Whereas Esau or Edom as a nation has experienced such calamity, such disaster. They have not enjoyed the favor of God in the same way that the nation of Israel did. Israel had lived consistently, even in the face of their unfaithfulness, under the hand of God's blessing and great favor toward them for years and years and years and years. They've asked now, God, how have you loved us? And God reminds them, look back across your history, Israel. Look at how I called Abraham out of Ur. And I, I gave him an identity and I gave him a sense of security and I gave him a new community, even apart from his former family. And I established him as the patriarchal head of a people. I gave him descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Look at how I called and set apart Moses and delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and set them on a course for the promised land. Look at how Joshua led you over and you enjoyed great victory. Look at how you've inhabited a land that flows with milk and honey. Think back to Solomon and his leadership and the establishment of the Solomonic Temple and how God came to dwell in the midst of that people. Think of how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to rebuke and convince and correct the people of Israel when they broke covenant with God. Think of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel through the centuries. We might make similar observations of our own life. You ever reflect on your experience? I was almost 20 before I came to faith in Jesus, but I can look back across my life as long as I can remember, and I can see the hand of God's favor for me and not against me. As a child, even, in a, child, even a child in a family that was not Christian, allowing me the benefit of bumping into a few Christian people and seeing in them an example of what it looked like to follow Jesus. Even through all of the craziness of my teenage years, and the craziness could fill volumes, God was always faithful to allow someone to be a part of my life, to be at least a reminder to me that there is a God in heaven who not only sees what I do, but has interest in the things that I do. God marked my path in allowing me through a series of unfortunate events to land not with my nuclear family, immediate family, but with a grandmother that loved Jesus with all of her heart and soul and strength and mind, taking difficult and sometimes desperate circumstances to put me in situations where I'd be exposed to the preaching of the gospel. 
conditioning my heart, preparing my heart in life, setting my focus on the things of God in a season when my mind would have been elsewhere on any given moment. God, God was always showing me favor. God was always gracious to me over the course of my life, even when I did not personally know who he was, when I was altogether undeserving, even as I am today. God continued. He persisted in his faithfulness toward me. We can ask the same question of God tonight and find similar answers. Look back across the span of your life and reflect on the favor that God has consistently shown you. Even in your foolishness, God has consistently pursued you in faithful love for you. He's continued to come after you. He answers emphatically here. I have loved you in the great favor that I've shown you in binding myself to you in this unconditional and eternal covenant relationship. In verses 6 and 7, the Bible reads, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? Verse 7 explains by presenting defiled food on my altar. There's a third question here in the remainder of verse 7. How have we defiled you? And the response of God is when you say the Lord's table is contemptible. The questions are, how have we despised you and how have we defiled you? And what God makes clear in the verses that follow is that they've done so and their resistance to worship according to the prescription of the scripture. What Malachi's message for the people of Israel is, is, is essentially this. You're worshiping with your mouth, even with your deeds, but your hearts are far from God. In this act, you have despised me and you have defiled the sacrifice. You've not brought to me your best. You've not been willing to worship me from a broken and contrite spirit. In verse 8, he explains, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor, asked the Lord of hosts? And now ask for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. He's speaking specifically of the sacrificial system. A system that required of them that they bring animal sacrifices, certain animal sacrifices at certain times, that those sacrifices be offered as an act of worship to God. Under certain circumstances, they were required to bring monetary gifts to make a financial offering as an act of worship to God. What God is essentially saying is, if you were tithing the same way, or if you were paying your taxes the same way you tithe, would the IRS be satisfied with your consistency in paying taxes? God says, give it to your governors and see how impressed they are with your gift. Rather than bringing the best of their flocks, they brought the sick, the lame, the half-dead animals, that those animals be offered in the temple as an act of worship. And in doing so, they had despised and defiled this act of worship. God desires our best, that we give him our best. And failing to give anything less than our best is a means of despising his name and defiling the act of worship. Even the act of giving ought to be an act 
of worship. Can I, can I confess to you, I've got, I've got one last hanging pet peeve about our COVID adjustments. I really hate the fact, I hate the fact that at least until now, and it may be a few weeks until it's able to be completely restored, but I hate the fact that we don't have an opportunity for corporate giving. That's, that's, that's happening as we dismiss on Sunday morning or it's happening exclusively electronically outside of the assembly. One, I think there's immense value in our children and our grandchildren seeing us willfully glad, with glad hearts giving away. I think that's a good thing to model for young followers of Christ, specifically for our children and our grandchildren. But maybe even more than that, because that is prescribed as a part of our worship. That is an act of worship for us that in some ways we're kept from when we don't have the ability to celebrate that corporately or congregationally. Now, one of the ways that you can sort of alleviate that is by making that a part of your family's Sunday morning experience or even sitting down on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, whenever it is that you get to that part of your life and making sure that your family is involved in that or that at minimum, that's a set-apart time when you're making that transaction as an act of worship, not like you're paying the light bill, right? But I'm looking forward to a time when that can be restored to the assembly of of the church. They had defiled worship, they had despised the name of God in failing to bring or to give their best. There's a fourth question over in chapter 2. If you'll look over to chapter 2 and verse number 10. The Bible says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now there's a shift here, and Malachi asks this question, and he involves himself in the violation itself. Notice that he asks here, why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? We are very individualistic people in America, and I think there is an element of virtue in that. But sometimes, because of our radical individualism, we lose sight of what a collective body we are. And even within the church, because of our radical individualism, we see ourselves as separate and distinct from the larger group. The reality is that far more often than what we might be comfortable with in our individualism, the Bible makes reference to us and even judgment is passed on a corporate basis. In other words, we are in this thing together. Your faithfulness to walk with Jesus has bearing in the lives of those around you. Your unwillingness to walk faithfully with Jesus has bearing on the lives of those around you. In the same way that Achan's secret sin brought destruction to the army of Israel, it might be that your secret sin is the very thing that brings destruction to the greater body around you. On the opposite, it might be that your willingness to sell out for the glory of Jesus could be the very thing that could spark renewal and revival and awakening within the larger body, the mechanism for God's moving in the most powerful of ways. Malachi asks, didn't God create us? Don't we have one father? 
Then why do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our Father? Why do we betray? Why do we deceive? Why do we abandon? Why do we neglect? And then Malachi lists for us three ways that their treachery expressed itself. Look at verse 11. Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. To the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. They had profaned the temple in that they had married foreign women and they had brought those foreign women into temple worship. Now, this is not a passage that would prohibit marrying outside of one's ethnic identity. That's not at all what is intended in the Old Testament nor in the New. But there was a prescription that foreign marriages would be prohibited under the Old Covenant so as to prevent the worship of foreign gods. And in a patriarchal society and the system in which they operated, marrying a foreign woman 99% of the time meant the adoption of that foreign wife. If you think back to Ahab, the most wicked king in Israel's history, marrying foreign wives, princes and kings' wives from other nations, those were all diplomatic acts. They were acts during which not only did he receive the benefit of this wife's presence in his court, he at the same time was adopting their religious practice. He was pulling in. He, he was pluralizing his religious practice. He was demonstrating his great tolerance and his willingness to embrace other neighboring cultures. The problem with that is that God doesn't picture that or couch that, cast that in such a positive light. It is an act of spiritual adultery and drifting from the worship of the one true and living God. The people of Israel in Malachi's day had given themselves over to this kind of idolatry. The first way that they had perverted or acted treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of the fathers, was in giving themselves over to the worship of foreign gods. We don't typically think of ourselves as violators of this prohibition against the worship of foreign gods, but I'm afraid that in our sophistication, we have invented new ways of violating this prohibition against the worship of foreign gods. We tend to make gods after our own image. We live in a land where there are a multitude of Jesuses parading around, many of which having very little similarity, if any at all, to the Jesus of the Scripture. Our allegiance is to the one true and living God. And, and we have to be consistent in testing ourselves, evaluating our hearts and our motives, that we are worshiping the one true and living God alone, not the God of our imagination or the God that we've elected to bow the knee to on a given week. May our worship be for Christ and for Christ alone. I can't tell you the ways that that works itself out in our personal experience. There's a second thing described in verse number 13. Malachi says, this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Not only had they given themselves over to foreign gods, they'd given themselves over to fake worship. They knew how to come and conjure and experience. They knew how to come and weep and wail 
and make a show, but their hearts remained far from God. There's so much of American Christianity that is so fixated on a Sunday morning experience. We want to feel a certain way, to have our affections moved in a certain way. And it should be that when we worship the one true and living God, it is an emotional thing for us. But I got to tell you, it's an altogether different thing pictured in the Bible than what I see in many American church contexts. It's, it's not this exuberant bouncing around the room or this ecstatic experience. When Habakkuk has his great questions answered by God, he said it as though my bones became rotten within me. He crumbled before the Lord's presence. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, his response was, woe is me for I am undone and I live in the midst of an undone, unclean people. When John in the book of Revelation found himself in the spirit on the Lord's day, he was stricken not with emotional ecstasy, but with great fear at the vision of Jesus Christ that was brought before him. Malachi says, you come and you make all of the proper emotional expressions, but your hearts are far from me. Far be it from us to be more moved by a turn of phrase, a song, a crescendo in the music than we are by the notion that there is a good and faithful God in heaven who has loved us so much that he sent forth his only begotten son who would bleed and die in our place that we might have everlasting life. That's the message that ought to move our heart. That's the character of the God who is worthy of our worship and our praise. How have we done it? Malachi says, the first answer is by giving yourselves to the worship of foreign gods, and the second is by false worship. There's a third thing here, and uh, I, I hope we have the time. I'm planning for us to give attention to this subject at great length over the next few weeks. In verse 14, they respond to that accusation that they're worshiping falsely, yet you ask, for what reason? Why don't you accept our offerings is essentially the question. God says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and don't act treacherously against the wife of your youth if he hates divorce and if he hates and divorces his wife says the Lord God of Israel he covers his garment with injustice says the Lord of hosts therefore watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously it's interesting to me that in a day and age when there is so much conversation about the notion of justice and the presence of injustice that at the same time, there is a considerable disinterest in talking about answering injustice in, in a way that, that does truly bring about the service of justice and alleviates the injustice that is so common around us. There's all of the, this discussion, and I don't have any great desire to make a political statement or get involved in such foolish conversations, but there's lots and lots and lots of talk about systemic injustice. And in my observation, there is systemic injustice in our country. I'm not sure it expresses itself in the way that some would have you to believe. 
But in my estimation, one of the ways that systemic injustice has multiplied itself exponentially in the last 50 years in our country is in the neglect of family, the absolute explosion of divorce and remarriage with very little care, and the consistent abandonment, not to mention abortion, of small children. That's, what's, that's what systemic injustice looks like. And I, I could talk to you for a long, and I'm not suggesting that those who fall victim to such things are any worse off than anyone else. God is a God of great grace, and I, I thank God for that. I thank God for the grace that he's shown me, and I have within my circle of friends and closest family members, folks who have been through the difficulties of divorce and come out the other side remarried and are doing wonderfully. One of the most precious people in all of this world is my stepmother. Been as much a mother to me as anybody in this world could be. In fact, in the Bible, one of the best parents in the scripture is a step-parent. His name is Joseph. He didn't have to be a father to that baby Jesus, but he was. And there's a sterling example to be followed after in the life of Joseph. But I'm speaking in more general terms, in a, more broader, in a broader sense within our culture, the, the children of these kinds of separation and the impact, the lasting effect of that in, in my generation especially, but in the generations after as well. We've reached a point where there are more children in our country who were born into a home that does not have a father than there are those who are born into nuclear families. And if you, if you don't have eyes to see the disastrous effects of that in our culture, you simply do not have eyes to see. If, if you want to know why we have rioting in every major city in the United States of America, you lead, need look no further back than the 1970s and the almost complete absence of fathers from the home, the inability of children to learn respect for authority over the course of time. It is the answer to why we see what we see. Now, there may be injustice expressing itself in other ways, and without question, in certain communities, this has expressed itself in more powerful ways than maybe in our own community. But there can be no denying the fact by practice, by experience, by mere observation, and certainly on the basis of what God's Word says here, that the act of careless divorce, the willful putting away of one's life, and for that matter in our context, the willful putting away of one's husband, is an act that covers one's garments in violence and injustice. It always promotes, it expresses itself in such ways over the course of time. May God forgive us where we go astray or fail to speak to such issues. It's always tough to speak to that, and I, I hope that you'll always hear me with sympathy when I talk about these issues. I do think that it's possible that we can speak with kindness and conviction at the same time, and I hope that you'll hear me that way. My experience has been, gladly, by grace, my experience has been that more often than not, it's the people who have been the victims of divorce, either in their personal experience or in that of their families, that are the first to get in line behind me and standing behind this, standing against this act of injustice. May their tribe increase all the more. By the way, that's something that we begin to alleviate with our children at a very early age. That's the kind of thing you work to alleviate, not when they're at an age to get married, 
but before they're at, and I, I tell, I, I, we always say before they start to stink at our house, we got all boys. Girls may not stink. But when boys start smelling, they need to know something about this, right? It's a great act of injustice and the kind of thing that we need to make war against as the body of Christ, the kind of thing that needs to be purged as much as is possible from the body of Christ. Chapter 2, verse number 17, we have a, a fifth question asked. This is a pretty straightforward question, and it's answered pretty simply. The Bible says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? And he answers, when you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? In other words, when you call what is good evil and what is evil good, you weary the Lord. The Lord's patience grows thin with our calling what is evil good and what is good evil. Now, I got to tell you, one of the a frustration that I find myself running into here more than I ever did in a much more rural area, more isolated area, is that I can have a gospel conversation with a person who is living a lifestyle or making decisions that, that are a, a clear violation of God's standard. And they're able here to walk away from me and to find someone else who claims the name of Jesus who will encourage them that the lifestyle that they've chosen is actually right, that there's virtue in the decisions that they've made. And I say, woe unto those who call what is evil good and what is good evil. And I don't say it on my own authority, but thus saith the Lord. In chapter 3, there is a prophecy there concerning John the Baptist. Maybe given time, we'll come back to that prophecy. There are two sort of breaks from this question and answer approach to Malachi. One is in chapter 3 and the prophecy of John the Baptist and his coming. The other is back in chapter 2 and a discussion of the priest involvement in the profaning of worship. But the next question itself comes in chapter 3 and verse number 7. The Bible says here, since the days of your fathers, you've turned from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And you ask, how do we rob you? That's actually two questions in one. The first of those how do we return? How do we come back? Malachi's charge against the people is that from days of old, they had turned away from the Lord. They had not kept his commands, his statutes. They had not met the requirement of God. And he calls them to return, but they ask, how, how can we return? How do we come back? How do, how do we change course? How do we repent? God promises here, you return to me and I'll return to you. There's always this question with regards to revival. I was reading some social media interactions between the pastor who maybe was looking upon that with some degree of skepticism. Long Hollow Church in Nashville, if you weren't aware of this, has baptized 1,000 people since January. And God seems to be doing something pretty extraordinary there. And it's not just a fly-by-night, willy-nilly kind of thing. Uh, their pastor is a faithful brother, committed to discipleship. In fact, what he's known for is discipleship and has written sev several really good books on discipleship. And I, I trust that's happening there with those who are so quickly coming to faith 
in that body. The, the question that was posed for him in response to his call to the church to ready their hearts for revival, as though revival was dependent upon their readying their hearts for revival. The, the question was, is not revival something that is entirely of God, the sovereign work of God? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, revival is exclusively of God. It is the sovereign work of God. But God has called us as a people to set the sails of our heart for the still-blowing wind of His Holy Spirit, hasn't He? We're told in James, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. That's in essence what Malachi is describing here. Labor to return to God and God will return to you. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist of the first great awakening, said we ought to labor to be brought near to God. Using both active and passive terminology to describe that experience. We get before God. We lay hold of God with the spirit of Jacob. And we ask and we plead and we ask and plead again that God would draw near to us. We, in essence, set the sails of our heart for the still blowing wind of God's Holy Spirit spirit to move in the most powerful of ways. How do you return to God? By returning to God. One decision at a time, one prayer at a time, one song of worship at a time, one act of faithfulness at a time. We labor to be brought near to God. There's something to be said for persistent obedience over time, anxiously anticipating that moment when the, when the voice of God speaks, when the breath of the Spirit blows and does something that is exclusively of the sovereignty of God over our life. How do we return? One decision at a time. We just return. We just return. And then in verse 8, we read it a moment ago, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. This is a discussion about tithing. And occasionally, someone will ask me about tithing, as, and there's confusion about what tithing requires of us. I appreciate the fact that in the translation that I'm reading, it just says tenth. The language of tithe has become sort of antiquated, and I think there are many people that do not realize that a tithe is just a word for 10%. That's the floor, that's the baseline for our giving. I had a pretty good party of what I called grace givers in my former pastorate, and they didn't believe in the tithe. They didn't believe in the tithe because they believed that to be a function of the old covenant and were now under the new covenant. But I was always cool with the camp, right? Because here was the theory. The grace of the new covenant is greater than the law of the old covenant. Grace is always greater than the law. So in, the, in their estimation, and I would affirm this line of thinking, what we're called to under the new covenant is a far greater level of generosity and sacrifice than we could ever be called to under the old covenant. I would be in agreement with the notion that the tithe, the tenth, is the floor of our giving and not the ceiling. What we really ought to be seeking after in our generosity is sacrifice beyond the bare minimum, but to give lavishly, to give generously as God has so graciously given to us. In verse 9, the Bible says, you're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me, withholding 
what was God's brought a curse. And you know, it's always a struggle, I think, for preachers to talk about this issue because people get all funky about money. And so I don't say this for my own benefit at all. I'm just telling you for your own good. You will never get ahead financially by withholding what belongs to God. It just ain't going to ever happen. In fact, there are exceptions, but for the most part, wisdom dictates that you're not going to get ahead in general by doing things that are unwholesome, ungodly, immoral, or even illegal. I can tell this story now because everybody's dead except for me. But there, there was a time, uh, there was, there was a time when there was someone who was close to me, who was trying to pull a shady deal with an insurance claim, and I warned him. I warned him. Now, he was in authority over me. He was my elder by two generations. But I warned him, this ain't going to work. And he tried to suck me in. By that, I mean he tried to make me do what was supposed to be hired out to somebody else. And I just bucked him and said, I'm not going to do it. It was, it was the first time post-conversion that I had bucked him. Now, I did it all the time before God saved me. But I tried to make it a pattern to do what I was instructed to do after coming to faith in Jesus. And I can't remember the exact amount that he got over on the insurance company, but let's say, and it was in the ballpark of $2,300. And I watched the week after that check came from the insurance company as $2,300 worth of stuff broke down around the place. And I said, I told you, 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 will, not get a, you will not beat God by doing the immoral, the ungodly, or the illegal. And so I'm just telling you for your own good, you're not going to catch up you're not going to get ahead. You're not going to make hay trying to shorthand what God has required of you. He says here, you live under a curse. In verse 10, he says, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I'll not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it'll not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you'll be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I have found in my personal experience that even when I couldn't make the math work, if I would remain faithful to give as God had called me to give, he had an incredible way of making sure that all of our needs were met. Now, we live at a level of comfort at this point in our life that exceeds what the overwhelming majority of people in this world enjoy, and I thank God for that. But I got to tell you that there's a certain blessedness that comes with the dependency of living from God's hand to our mouth and there was a pretty extended season in the early years of our marriage when that's exactly how we lived from God's hand to our mouth and yet God never failed to meet every need that arose in our life and I could tell you story after story after story of how God provided we went to my first church the first church I pastored I made twenty thousand five hundred dollars a year and we ain't talking about in the dark ages like in the 80s right I'm talking about in, in, the, in, the, in the 2000s. And I was in school, and Brandy was in school, and we had a new baby. And I'm telling you, God met every need that arose in our life. Now, mathematically, it doesn't work. But spiritually, under the goodness and favor of God, it always does. He's got a way of making it happen. There's one more 
question in verses 13 and 14. The Bible says here, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? And he answers them, you have said it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who doesn't serve him. I, I, th I think this line of thinking is why some people go astray. What good does it do to serve the Lord? How is this benefiting me today? And you can look out. You can watch the news cycle or television in general. Find people who are prospering in their wickedness. That's, that's the experience of some. At least that's the way it's pictured. It's not the experience of nearly as many as you'd be led to believe in the nightly news. But at least that's the way it's perceived. And you see yourself struggling to be faithful to the Lord. And sometimes struggling hard. My, and my, my encouragement to you is that God sees every act of faithfulness. And at the same time, God sees every act of unfaithfulness. And there's coming a day when the book of remembrance is broken out one last time. Judgment is passed on all the earth. And I want to be found on the faithful side of the ledger. How about you? Here's a call to walk faithfully with God, even when it doesn't work for us. See, that's the danger of that discussion on the last question about giving. Because the fact of the matter is, if God calls us to do something and it doesn't work out well for us, there's no less blessing in our faithfulness to do what God has called us than there would be otherwise. That's, the, that's, what, that's what take up your cross and follow me means. Now, especially with this tithing conversation, and I think it's unique because it's the only command in the Bible where God says, just try me out and see if I don't throw open the windows of heaven. But, but, but there are... Many other instances where God calls us to faithfulness and there's, there's no promise of blessedness. Again, the mantra of Jesus, the central message of Jesus' ministry was take up the cross and follow after me. It was come and die and not in a figurative sense but in a literal sense. Come after me and die. Willingly lay down your life for the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of my name. Come and be faithful knowing that it will not serve your self-interest. We, we, we remain faithful, not because it's good for us. As beneficial as it has been for us over the course of our nation's history because of the social acceptability of Christianity. We are approaching an era during which it will no longer be favorable for us to pattern our lives after the conviction set forth in the scripture. But the call of God has not changed. Take up the cross and follow after me, even when it doesn't serve your self-interest. Can I tell you why? 
because it's worth it. Because Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. If it means our life, Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. In my reading this last week, here's my last statement. I came across this verse. I was studying the book of Revelation for an introduction to New Testament class. In the center section of Revelation are chapters 13 and 14 where it talks about the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And they are set between those two passages is a little statement that says, if you're to be careful, you realize what that means? It's a, it's a call to passive opposition to the powers of this world in Jesus' name. That if it means your captivity, if it means your death by the sword, hold fast to the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, we have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed, as the book of Hebrews says. But we ought to prepare ourselves for such faithfulness, oughtn't we? And if we do, we'll find ourselves all the more faithful in the relative ease with which we live our lives most every day of our life. Be faithful to Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for the chance to spend these moments in the study of your word. Thank you that even as we have been gathered here, Lord, that your people are actively out in the harvest sharing the good news of the gospel. God, I, I pray that you would help them to share with boldness that as they return, as we prepare to dismiss and, and we enjoy our fellowship here in the lobby and as the children and youth begin to make their way out, I pray that this becomes a hub for conversations about not only what God has said through his word while we've been gathered here, but what God has done through his spirit out there. God grant it so keep us faithful as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.